Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am enjoying a beautiful Cinco de Mayo here in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, flying solo as Mrs. B is off to the Sunshine State of Florida to visit with Garrett and MJ. So, yeah, it's just me and the dog hanging tight. Well, we appreciate you guys hanging with us today. We are going to have some fun talking about Slamboree 1997. This won the poll. We put up a lot of different slamborees and man, you guys love 1997, but not nearly as much as you enjoyed our collision in Korea episode, Eric, the feedback I got was overwhelming. Probably our most well-received show. I'm still getting messages every single day. Were you surprised by the reaction that we got for our Korea show last week? I was indeed, you know, first of all, I was surprised that, you know, you decided you wanted to, you know, break that show down because it wasn't really kind of an off the, off the grid kind of a pay-per-view. It wasn't one of our big 12, if you will, ancillary pay-per-view as I refer to it. Um, and it meant a lot to me. It was a hell of an experience for me, but like you, I am still getting messages and was overwhelmed. And, you know, one of the things I like to try to do on social media, on Twitter in particular, because that's where I spend most of my social media time, is thank people who comment, whether good, bad, indifferent, doesn't matter. When people comment on one of our shows and they take the time to critique it or to, you know, put it over or whatever, I always try to acknowledge as many of those responses as I can. And it got to the point where I thought, okay, this is probably starting to get a little bit monotonous for people because <laughs> they're seeing me constantly, you know, responding to some of the positive feedback that we got. But it was really, really uh, gratifying and made me feel great. Well, what's interesting as a show like that, I think a lot of people see the title of the show and they think, oh, I don't remember that or I don't really care about that. But then somebody listens to it and they tell their friend, man, you got to hear this. So the downloads were fun to watch because they curve up instead of down. So like with a, you know, a, a new hit movie, eventually, you know, you start to see a downtick. It's the other way for Korea. It's still building just based on word of mouth. And it was an interesting, you know, visit down the rabbit hole of a new nation and uh, a little bit of a departure for us because we weren't as in the weeds about professional wrestling, but we are going to get in the weeds today all about Slamboree 1997. It's funny because both you and I thought, wait a minute, we've already covered this one, but in fact, it was spring stampede 97 that we did. And uh, now we're going to get going a month later. So we covered our April spring stampede 97 in the archives. Now, uh, this is the next pay-per-view Slamboree 1997, but Slamboree and 1997 is my favorite year ever, uh, for professional wrestling. And this show in particular is a bit of a transition show. Uh, it's interesting because of the main event, which we're going to get to, but everything that WCW touches here is gold. This show included April 18th, 1997 from the independence arena right there in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this pay-per-view is going to signal Ric Flair's return to the ring after a long layoff. I think he had been out for a rotator cuff surgery. Uh, he still, um, favors that rotator cuff a little bit every now and again now, but if you're going to bring Ric Flair back, man, the place to do it is Charlotte, North Carolina. Am I right? Absolutely. You know, for such a long time, Rick was a, a fixture in Charlotte and, and Charlotte was a hotbed. You know, we often talk about Minneapolis. We talk about Tampa, uh, two degree Memphis, you know, Nashville, that, that part of the country, um, 
Dallas was for a long time a hotbed, but Charlotte ended up being, you know, a hotbed, I think in the late eighties, so many wrestlers lived in the Charlotte area, you know, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Wahoo McDaniel, um, Magnum PA, so many others. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a million of them. But Charlotte was one of those markets where a lot of really big name wrestlers lived and and wrestling as a result often came to Charlotte and, and did extremely well in that market. NWA was, you know, I, I don't know where its official home was, but I'm guessing it was probably Charlotte. Yeah, well, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions was based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, for sure. Yeah, so so it definitely a hotbed. Yeah. And it makes sense that you guys are back here, you know, especially after the great success you've had with Rick and these sort of homecoming type situations, you know, Starcade 93, sort of the same thing. Rick's not the original guy in the main event, supposed to be Sid and Vader. Instead, you call an audible, it's Rick. And, uh, the show is a critical success as a result. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the company, uh, because what I enjoy doing is sort of tracking the growth of WCW. And then we're going to look specifically at 95, 96 and 97. Um, check this out. Your average attendance in 1995 is 2020 fans in 96, a huge jump, 3,467 fans. And now here in 97, 4,955 fans. So in just two years, you're going from 2000 to nearly 5,000 as a result, the money is a lot more as well. A $21,000 gate average in 95, all the way to more than 61,000 in 97. You're even selling out about 38% of your live events. You were selling out nothing in 1995. Now, what's fascinating about this is the ratings for cable actually take a little bit of a dip. They go from a 2.27 in 95 down to a 2.20, not a significant dip, but it's there. And the same thing for pay-per-views. You're doing a 0.96 buy rate in 95, but a 0.7 buy rate in 97. That sort of shocks me a little bit to look at a buy rate. That's actually moving down a little bit from 95 where all the other metric is up. We've talked a lot about how the numbers can tell whatever story you want them to here. When you look at the books of Turner and the numbers of professional wrestling and not just wrestling like ratings in general, everyone who's going to make a pitch for their product is going to say they're number one in the demo but they can get so granular with the demo sometimes that it's really not of any significant relevance. When you hear a number like, Hey, the buy rate was down from a 0.96 and 95 to 0.70 and 97. What's your immediate reaction to that? I think one of the things that people that digest some of this information have to understand is that, you know, ratings and viewers viewership, is somewhat misleading. Keep in mind that particularly during the 90s, the cable footprint, meaning the number of homes that subscribed to cable, was growing pretty substantially. And the the greater that the larger that footprint became, the less significant the rating became, meaning a 2.0 rating when you had 79 million homes getting cable was one number. And that same two, two, two rating when there were 95 million homes getting cable was a different number. 
you may have had a larger viewership overall in the latter mm -hmm. than in the former, but the rating would indicate that you're not really growing. So it's a little bit, it, it, it is confusing. You know, I'm not a statistician. I'm not a mathematician, clearly. But you, you have to be a little bit careful about how you compare apples and oranges over the course of a period of time unless you take into consideration the growth of the overall cable footprint. So when you factor all that in, while the rating may have gone down incre incrementally over a period of time, the actual viewership was probably going up because of the growth of the cable footprint, which is why today very rarely within the television industry does anybody talk about ratings. Right. And if they do, it's almost a footnote as it relates to the overall viewership. Viewership is where it's at. When people talk within the industry of the television industry, most people refer to total viewers as opposed to ratings for that very reason. Let's keep it moving here. Um, Meltzer is going to report merchandise continues to do phenomenal business. Norfolk was $48,000, which is actually disappointing by the standards in some cities of seven to $10 per head, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with more heel oriented crowds did 38 and 43% NWO merchandise respectively. Philadelphia set the all time company merchandise record at $143,352. The Sting T-shirt is the top seller everywhere, followed by NWO and the new paid shirts. In most cities right now, the split is around 69-31 WCW over NWO when it comes to merchandise. This is so fascinating to me. I really enjoy the business breakdown. I want to break this up into a few different uh, pieces of discussion, though. The term per head is something that we have heard a lot from Dave Meltzer over the years. And of course, what he's doing there is he's breaking down the attendance of the show and then dividing that into what the merchandise revenue was. And then he figures out for every patron that comes through, you're making roughly X dollars at the merchandise stand seven to $10. Does that sound good to you? Is, was there a goal? Did WCW ever have any sort of initiative to say, we got to get to a 12 or anything like that? Well, WCW never did. Um, keep in mind. Again, context is king. It always is. And, and as we've discussed here previously, up until really 1995, probably more accurately, 1996, WCW's merchandise revenue was negligible. It almost didn't exist, right? So there was no <laughs> – there were no goals. There were no – it was an ancillary revenue stream, meaning you, you know you had to do it because there was some money to be made, but it was such it was almost like catering in a way or concessions sales to a degree. It was so ancillary to everything else we were doing, and it almost had no you know goals or projections. It wasn't until ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, obviously, that merchandise became a significant revenue stream where we started to compare it to, for example. You call it, you know, I think you call it per head or whatever it was. We, we refer to it as per cap. Yeah. Uh, we, we only started comparing our revenue on the merchandise side to things like WWF 
previous WWF, WWE, or Ringling Brothers, or NASCAR, or other types of live event uh, branded events. And our, you know, once we started hitting ten, eight, nine, ten dollars per head per cap, uh, it started to get real exciting. Now, fast forward, you know. 2014, 2015, when I showed up to, to, and this is again, this is where numbers can be deceiving, and you know, those who choose to deceive can use numbers to do it. I'm working at TNA, and and I never went to any of the executive meetings. I never participated in any of that. I, I was asked to. I was almost uh, forced to at one point until I drew a line in the sand and said no. But one of the things I often heard was how in TNA they would get so excited when their per cap merchandise numbers um, reached a certain level, like at $10 or $11 or $12. But in, in TNA's case, they were only drawing 250,000 or 250, you know, fans to a live event or 300 fans to a live event. But if they could stuff a bunch of, you know, merch in a brown bag and sell it to everybody there and somehow walking out of that arena or that live event and they would come up with, with a number that suggested to them that they, you know, they did $10 per cap or $12 per cap, which is more than the WWE does. You know, they would be patting themselves on the back for two weeks, you know, with, with that kind of number. Neglecting, you know, to reference the fact that there were only 200 people at that live event. And half of them got there free. So, again, it's, you know, numbers can lie. Liars can use numbers um, however they want. But in our case, you know, in 97, we were not only drawing massive houses, as you pointed out, we were getting that, you know, big per cap number. And it became very, very significant for the first time in, you know, WCW's existence. It's uh, it's just so fun to to think about the merchandise and how it is a new revenue stream for WCW. Are you a little bit surprised to hear that here in, you know, the first half of 1997 that Sting and WCW are outselling NWO merch? I, I know when I look back, you know, I, I sort of think that oh, the NWO was the top thing, and I mean nothing else was even close. Yeah, I I was a little surprised to read that and, and to hear that as well. But again, going, going back in time, I think, you know, the NWO raised, you know, the, the, the saying, you know, high tide, you know, floats all boats. The NWO storyline in that angle, certainly by 1997 was floating all the boats. It certainly floated the boat for WCW and Sting was one of the top sellers in that category, obviously for WCW, because the interest, the battle, the storyline between NWO and WCW is manifest in, in this particular pay-per-view. And we'll talk about this a, a little bit along the way. But the, the the actual war, if you will, that I tried to create between the two brands was beginning to reach a fever pitch. And it, although it was still favoring WCW in early, you know, this is March, I think, 1997 uh, or May 1997, uh, it was still growing. You know, we were still on that, uh, on the upward slide, on, on the upper scale of the arc that we were trying to create. Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk a little bit about, uh, where business is, uh, just 96 to 97 specifically. 
what do you think the biggest, I mean, the NWO is obviously the biggest change creatively. What's the biggest change in WCW beyond the NWO when you see your average attendance go up 58%, your gates up a hundred percent. Can you put your finger on anything besides the NWO or does that really deserve all the credit? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think Nitro, the fact that we had a primetime show head to head with the WWE first off deserves all the credit because it, had we, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine actually, because so many of the conditions would have been so vastly different that it, it is hard to imagine. It's almost hypothetical. Or actually it is. But if we assume for a moment that Nitro never came along, but the NWO idea did, as incongruous as that concept is, let's just play with it for a minute. Sure. We could have launched the same storyline on TBS, you know, on Saturday night. And it would have probably worked to a degree. It never would have worked to the degree that it has. And I was recently in Liverpool with Ric Flair and Kevin Nash and I'm not going to name drop, but a whole bunch of other people. And we had two nights where we were able to really hang out and talk and, and just, you know, reminisce and, and, and tell jokes and stories and have fun. And it was an absolute blast. It was the best trip I've ever been on. You know, wrestling wise, I, I, I told my wife when I got home Tuesday, cause it took me actually till Tuesday to get home. Um, I would have emptied my luggage done my laundry repacked and turned around and gone back the, the next day to do it again. It was so much fun. And one of the things that I heard over there, and I'm again, not going to name drop, but someone who I believe has a lot of credibility told me that most recently, like last quarter, 86,000 NWO shirts were sold on Amazon. I don't know where this person got that information. I didn't ask I didn't dig into it, but I have no reason to doubt it. Based on the fact that while I was over in the UK, I saw more NWO shirts than anything. And it's still, I know we've said this before, and I hate to be redundant. I hate to say the same things on each episode, but I'm still blown the fuck away at, at how that merchandise continues 20 some odd years later to sell. And the, the, the whole idea of how do you create merchandise that's not only hot for a week or two or a month or two or six months or so, but creating merchandise that lives for decades. I actually took a picture. You could go to my social media and find it of a baby that was like four months old wearing an NWO T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and the parents, you know, had their NWO merchandise on. And they wanted desperately for me to take a picture with this baby with an NWO T-shirt. It's just it's just a fascinating process. You know, I guess it's like creating music or art or a movie or a television show or whatever it is. Um, you know, when you can create something that, you know, connects to people for as long as NWO merchandise has, it's pretty rewarding. You know, what's fun is, you know, the, you've made a reputation in wrestling for getting things over, you know, you got the NWO over and it's probably the most long lasting brand or, uh, you know, whatever movement in wrestling that 
that you sort of spearheaded, but uh, May 3rd in Osaka, Japan, new Japan has their strong style evolution show. It draws 53,000 fans, roughly a $4 million house, another 800 grand in merchandise and 400,000 paid for the television rights, a huge success. Why am I mentioning this? Well, there are WCW performers on the show. Uh, NWO sting Jeff farmer is going to tag with six and they pick up a win. We've also got Marcus Alexander Bagwell teaming with, uh, Scott Norton to get a win over Lex Luger and the giant. But what is really interesting is what happens after the show. We'll circle back to that. We haven't talked a lot about Jeff farmer on the show and I don't know when we'll bring him up again, but after you guys did the angle at fall brawl, the war games in 1996, where it looks like sting is siding with the NWO and turning his back on WCW. And of course, during that pay-per-view it's revealed. Nope. It was an imposter. The real sting is here. And, uh, the crow sting would be born as a result of WCW and Ric Flair and Lex Luger and guys like that doubting him. I'm saying all that to say Jeff Farmer hung around for a long time. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. What can you tell us about Jeff Farmer? Jeff Farmer was, you know, he, he was an inspiring performer in WCW. Mm, I, I want to be very sensitive. Yeah, sensitive. That's what I want to be. I want to be sensitive. Uh, in the way I describe Jeff, because he's a super guy. Um, he was never going to be a, a major star in, in WCW, in my opinion, at that time, not necessarily because of his lack of talent, but because of the overabundance of it that existed at that time. Hard to break through the clutter for him. And the whole, you know, fake sting, imposter sting thing was kind of an improvisational idea. Somebody threw it out there, went, oh, this would be kind of cool, cool. this would be a cool little stunt, angle, whatever. And it worked. Jeff did a great job. Physically, he looked very much like Sting, you know, about the same height, same build. Once you gimmicked him all up, you know, put him in his Sting outfit, you would have a hard time differentiating between the two, at least on television. So it, it worked really well. And we decided to utilize that angle. Actually, you know, the folks over at New Japan did, decided to utilize that angle over in Japan. And, you know, the motivation was probably pretty obvious. It was a lot cheaper or it was a lot easier. There wasn't necessarily a financial consideration, but it was a lot easier to get the fake sting over to Japan on a regular basis than it was the real sting. And the NWO, as I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about Hattori and all that, we've, we've touched on it before, but NWO merchandise was extremely hot in, in Japan during this period of time. So Jeff Farmer, who I recently ran into when I was over in Japan last, uh, a couple months ago, is still working in Japan as NWO Sting. He became a huge hit over in Japan. And it's just one of those kind of obscure, unexpected things that you, you, you do, you know, it's not like a whole lot of thought went into it. Nobody masterminded it. There wasn't a big debate. We didn't sit around the booking room and, you know, pound, you know, copious amounts of coffee and, 
you know, try to come up with a way to, you know, create a, a suitable replacement for Sting over in Japan. It just kind of happened almost as, as an improvisational kind of thing. But for whatever reason, he got over huge and he's still working to this day in Japan. He, he built a 20 year career out of being the imposter, the, the imposter Sting. It was great to see him. I saw Jeff, like I said, when I was over in Japan last a couple of months ago, we sat down and we had, you know, coffee together and, and had breakfast and it was great to see him. And you know, the fact that here's a guy who, you know, had it not been for the NWO and the whole imposter sting character, he might've spent a cup of coffee in the sports entertainment business. And instead he spent 20 years making a fortune over in Japan. <laughs> it's great. I mean, Nothing else like that exists in the history of wrestling, right? Well, not that not I'm aware of. I'm, I'm sure there are people out there that can probably, you know, dissect that and, and argue that. But I, I, if it, if, if there is, I don't know what it is. It's really amazing. And, uh, I'm glad we got to talk about it here. Well, what I really want to talk about though, is what happened after the show. Meltzer would write while in Japan last week, after the Osaka dome show in a bar, after many drinks had been emptied. Bischoff and new Japan referee tiger Hattori ended up betting each other a few hundred bucks that Hattori couldn't take Bischoff down. Hattori 51 is 10 years older than Bischoff and probably 50 pounds lighter, but he was a great wrestler in the Chris Taylor, Dan Gable era in 1970, while representing the New York athletic club, the United States, AAU Greco Roman champion at 136 pounds. In 1971, placed fifth in the AAU Freestyle Championships at the same weight. Anyway, they cleared out the tables in the bar, and Bischoff won the bet when Hattori couldn't take him down, which has to rank as a major upset. I found this story hysterical. What can you tell us about this? (laughs) I had forgotten all about that story, actually, until Sonny Ono and I were in Japan a couple months ago for the... uh, for the um, ceremonial event for Masa Saido. And it came up in the Japanese newspaper. In fact, I actually sent you, I think I sent you, um, and it was in Japanese, so I didn't expect you were able to read it, but it was just interesting. <laughs> it, 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 it came up in um, in the interview I did with one of the major Japanese newspapers. And as, as I said, I forgot all about it. And of course, Sonny was sitting close to me as you know, the interpreters were relaying this to me and I, you know, I had to look over at Sunday because I, you know, I need, as you know, Conrad, you and I have been doing this now together for almost over a year now. And again, unless I, you know, sit down early in the morning and watch whatever it is we're going to talk about. I just, I don't remember just more. I don't remember than I do. Let's put it that way. So as this story is being, you know, repeated to me, I'm like, Oh, wow. I do remember that. I forgot all about that because we were in Osaka when Sonny and I were there last. And the way that came about, interestingly enough, and we touched on this a little bit in previous episodes, but, you know, Sonny was the liaison between WCW and New Japan for all logistics. Let's just put it that way. Whether it was travel, merchandise orders, whatever, whatever it may be, Sonny, because he was fluent in Japanese, he was, he was born there and fluent was our in-house liaison. Nobody else wanted or, or was able to really, you know, handle that function. As such, whenever Japan, 
New Japan Pro Wrestling wanted to order NWO merchandise, they would order it through Sunny. We would then have it manufactured and shipped to New Japan Pro Wrestling. We would mark it up, whatever we, however we marked it up, 25, 30, 40%, whatever the number was. And I don't recall. If, if something cost us four or five dollars, we would sell it sell it to New Japan Pro Wrestling for eight dollars or nine dollars. They would mark it up then to, as I was told, thirty-five or forty dollars for retail. So it was a big piece of business for New Japan. About eight million dollars worth, I think, in nineteen ninety-seven. Exactly. And previous to myself being in charge of WCW and Sonny being a you know adjunct to me and, and, and part of the process, previously in, in WCW's history with New Japan, uh, Masawa or Tiger Hattori was that liaison. Now what Masawa was doing was he was along the way, so he would order something from WCW or whoever else he worked with in the United States, because he was based in New York, uh, he would then mark it up for himself and move it on down the line to New Japan. So he was pocketing a ton of cash. When Sonny, when I brought Sonny in, not knowing, by the way, I didn't know any of that. You know, I didn't know the history. I didn't know how business was done before. Nobody told me. Nobody smartened me up. I don't think anybody really freaking knew, to be honest. So now I come along, you know, new kid on the block, WCW, reestablish my, you know, relationship on a personal level, a professional level with New Japan Pro Wrestling. You know, got real tight with, you know, Masa Saito, who was really the, the, the direct connect, and Brad Ringens, who was the American liaison, Antonio Inoki, as we all know, and I got pretty close. And my relationship with the upper management in New Japan became pretty solidified without knowing how things used to be done. I didn't realize that we were totally circumventing Hattori. Now, at this event in Osaka, as Sonny reminded me when we were there last, a couple months ago, we were in this bar, and Hattori had kind of a chip on his shoulder. To me, to Sonny, he just, he saw how big everything was getting over in Japan with the NWO. He saw millions of dollars of merchandise, you know, being sold in Japan and he wasn't getting a cut. So he was kind of a dick, to be honest. And of course, you know, we're we're drinking. There's alcohol obviously alcohol involved. And he just, you know, he had he had a chip on his shoulder and things escalated in the conversation. And this is more, you know, Sonny reminding me of what happened than me actually recalling it. So I'm kind of giving you the third hand version of something I was actually involved with. And as things, you know, kind of escalated throughout the night in a, in a half hearted kind of funny sort of way, I, you know, I started pushing the Tory a little bit because he, he was being a little bit of a jackass. I didn't know what his background was. I knew he was an amateur wrestler in Japan. I knew he had, you know, pretty pretty stiff credentials, but I didn't know the details, or I probably would have been a little bit more cautious. But we ended up, yeah, we ended up clearing the chairs and, you know, he was, you know, kind of pounding his chest and telling me you know, how much, how easy he could wax the floor with me and things like that. And I went, yeah, I don't think he has a clue that I actually used to work. Now, I wasn't his 
you know, caliber wrestler. I want to make this really clear. On my best day, on my best day as as a high school wrestler, I was mediocre on my best day. Now, I got better out of high school. I started wrestling in the AU freestyle and Greco-Roman wrestling tournaments. I actually, you know, wrestled on an AEU uh, freestyle team representing the United States against Finland. So I actually got better out of high school because I started taking it more seriously and, and training with different level, uh, a different level of people. But I was pretty confident in myself by, by, in 1997 in terms of my wrestling ability, more honestly because of my martial arts background by 1997 you know i had already been a black belt for a long time and controlling the distance the gap between your opponent whether it's in boxing jujitsu you know whatever it is you know your ability to control the gap is probably as important to just about anything and i was pretty confident in myself at that point so i said sure I'll, i'll bet you and again because i didn't know you know, I didn't know Hattori's background. I had no idea how embarrassed he would be when he lost that bet. But it was, you know, it was a highlight of my career. <laughs> As a post-post-amateur wrestler, that was probably the highlight of my amateur wrestling career was taking Hattori's money in front of all of his peers, which made it better because Masa Saido and all the, you know, a lot of the the boys, the top, you know, top wrestlers from New Japan were all there. They all saw it. So Hattori was not only a dick, he was humiliated in the process, which made it great. Let's keep it moving here and let's talk about something else Meltzer reported. It was announced over the weekend on the main event and pro shows that Medusa beat Akira Hokuto on May 2nd in Japan to win, win the women's title and would defend the belt against Luna Vachon at Slamboree. The match actually never took place, but at least they saved money in the transportation budget by doing this fictitious match. Apparently they forgot to tell Medusa she won the title as when she got the nitro, she had no clue and was telling people who asked that she hadn't won the title. I don't know why that's fascinating to me, but it is, uh, the next week Meltzer would write. Here's this week's storyline on the women's title. It was announced on TV that the title was in dispute because of a legal dispute on the match, which never took place between Medusa and Akira. And not only was Medusa when she showed up to Nitro last week, unaware she had won the title, but midweek in Japan, when the news hit that Hokuto was no longer the champion, when the reporters asked her about it, she had no idea because nobody clued her in on the angle either. How in the world does this happen? (laughs) This happens primarily because of the lack of social media. This was at a time, remember, when you could do just you could do a lot of things in Japan that wouldn't show up, you know, with with the exception of, you know, maybe Dave would cover it or somebody else might, you know, recognize it in, you know, the peripheral wrestling news trades, if you will. See how nice I'm being. I'm by the way, I'm I'm making an effort starting with this episode to be a kinder, gentler person when it comes to the way I respond to particularly Dave Meltzer, because that's who you source most, most often. I'm, I've, I've discovered that <clears throat> I'm happier, generally speaking. I'm a happier person if I don't allow you or Dave 
indirectly to to make me angry. So I'm going to do my best to explain things when whenever Dave's name comes up, <clears throat> instead of automatically reaching into my fuck Dave Meltzer bag, which is what I normally do. I'm going to try to I'm going to take a deep breath. And I'm going to try to explain things in a in a logical, unemotional way. Back before social media, back when you could go do business in Japan and a performer like Sting or Lex Luger or Van Vader or whomever could go over there and do whatever had to be done storyline-wise for business, it really had no immediate impact on their business here in the United States and vice versa. Japanese wrestlers could come over here, do whatever needed to be done for business, and for the most part, other than a few small exceptions that really had no impact on overall business, it was as if it never happened. Amazing time. Hard to imagine with streaming and social media and all the things that we almost, at this point, take for granted, which is mind-boggling, but back then, 90s, 80s, you didn't have to worry about it. A handful of people knew about it. No big deal. And I, if I can recall, and I, and I, I knew where this, this subject was going to come up because you sent me the notes, <clears throat> and I really tried to dig into how the fuck did that happen? But I really think it was a situation where something was planned between – WCW and, and New Japan, and for whatever reason, it didn't occur. And this was, you know, New Japan's way of kind of, all right, well, we'll just say this and we'll do this. And it was never really thoroughly communicated because there was no reason for it to be. But good old Dave <laughs> discovered it and, and made an issue out of it. But um, that's the best I can recall of when it went down there. I think it was an original plan that got changed. And since it was an announcement made, everybody tried to do their best to cover their ass. And it just wasn't a hundred percent effective. Yeah. I would think that's fair to say, uh, let's keep it moving here. Um, <laughs> you correct me up. Like you never really commit to anything. It's like, yep. Yeah. That's fair to say. What's fair to say. It wasn't effective. Well, of course that was fair to say, cause we're talking about it 20 years later. <laughs> Uh, Melzer is going to talk about the uh, TV tapings in Orlando, and he's going to write there was a fight between Alex Wright and Hard Body Harrison, and uh, apparently the fight broke out when these guys were arguing about who's going to play the heel, and they both wanted to, and then the referee Randy Anderson said Alex Wright was the heel, and then Harrison started to get mad and said he was going to go to the office about something. Uh, here's the quote directly from the observer. Harrison had some sort of a warm-up exercise apparatus and apparently Wright thought Harrison was going to clock him with it. And he threw the first punch right in the eye and split his eye open. Harrison grabbed a front face lock and then they went at it until it was broken up. By most accounts, Wright was getting the better of it, which surprised some people since apparently hard body has done some tough man contests and it's supposed to be a legitimately tough guy to make moder- matters worse. Since he's not the star. Harrison pretty much got most of the blame put on him. I never heard about an Alex Wright dust up. 
until I did my research this week. What, do, what can you tell us about that? Okay, I'm going to whisper this because I don't want anybody to hear this and get pissed off. Dave Meltzer is an idiot. I know I said I was, and I'm not upset. I am not upset. But just think about what you relate to all of us, you know, to everybody that's listening to this podcast around the world. Dave Meltzer is giving for basically it's a play by play one down of what occurred between two individuals. And Dave was sitting in a one bedroom apartment, likely in Sacramento or wherever the fuck he lives. He wasn't there, but yet he's telling you on a blow by blow basis, what happened in an incident backstage between two people, even though he wasn't there. So whenever I tend to get upset about these kinds of reports and why people, you know, some people still to this day, why are you so hot about Dave Meltzer? I'm not, I don't give two shits about Dave Meltzer. I, I'm not even angry. I, I don't even dislike Dave Meltzer. I dislike what he did and to a degree, probably what he still does. I don't read him anymore. But this is a perfect example of publishing something as fact, as if, as if you were there, even though you fucking weren't. This kind of this is where this is where if I'm not totally disciplined, I can allow myself to go off on a Dave Meltzer tangent. Oh, you just did. So you're gonna tell us what really happened? No, I'm not no, I'm not upset. I'm not going off on a tangent. I'm trying to explain granularly in the weeds, in detail, from a psychological perspective, why the Dave Meltzer kind of reporting is so damaging to the wrestling industry, even though Dave, you know, likes to position himself as someone who loves the business, but yet at the same time, will tear it down at every opportunity for no reason. Dave wasn't there. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So I'm not going to comment on it. I can't tell you what really happened because I wasn't really there. And even though I probably more than Dave could easily pretend that I was, it's not fair to the people listening to this. Now, what I will tell you, just as a reminder, Dave Meltzer, according to one of the episodes we did a couple of weeks ago, reported that Alex Wright was from the UK. Okay. He reported when he first talked about Alex Wright coming to WCW, he was based in the he was a British wrestler. For fuck's sake. He was German. And I don't think Eric Bischoff can stop busting Dave Meltzer's balls. Let's keep it moving here. Um, the Hollywood reporter has a little blurb about Hulk Hogan's latest film called the ultimate weapon, which is going to start filming June 18th in Montreal. Of course, that's 1997. And the director, John strong was quoted as saying, this will be the most challenging role of Hulk's career and will make him one of America's leading action stars. What was your favorite part of the ultimate weapon? Um, I, I don't remember, you know, I saw this in your notes. I went, I don't remember that. Yeah. And I didn't 
the time to Google it or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, look, you know, Mr. Nanny, Santa with muscles, whatever. There's been a bunch of them, I guess, or several of them. Um, but I don't remember this one at all. Well, it came out in 1998, October of 1998 in Hungary, uh, when mercenary hardball cutter discovers that the team he is working with is actually a group of IRA gun runners. He decides to put a stop to their plans. Furious with cutter the gun runners, target him, his partner and his family on IMDB. It got 3.5 stars. Uh, that's out of 10. I mean, that's not very good, but you know what I'm looking forward to now? I, I don't know, you know, well, I do know, but I'm only going to comment on what has been publicly announced, um, because I have an NDA that prevents me from doing otherwise, but I heard there's a Hulk Hogan movie coming out on Netflix and I heard that Chris Hemsworth, who by the way, was a part of a $2 billion worldwide franchise, the adventures. Uh, it's projected to two billion dollars with a B at the box office is going to play Hulk Hogan. Todd Phillips, one of the greatest directors going right now in Hollywood, is a director. Cool dude by the name of Scott Silver is writing the script, and yours truly is going to be producing. That may be my favorite Hulk Hogan movie yet. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. Um, let's talk about a meeting you held. Uh, before the May 12th Nitro with all the boys, you announced here that Kevin Sullivan is going to be taking a hiatus as a booker for four to eight weeks due to burnout. And uh, you're saying that, you know, all the pressure of the job and outside personal pressures as well is really the cause of this. But you emphasize that he's not being replaced. But of course, in wrestling, that doesn't slow down the rumor mill. Everybody starts talking about, you know, hey, who's going to take his spot? Uh, but I guess we're classifying it as a leave of absence. And that means this Jacqueline angle he's working is going to be put on hold. And on the Saturday TBS show, he does this bizarre interview talking about having a shoot in the bar with Chris Benoit and Ming is speaking English here and said he broke the nerve hold on Benoit because Nancy said so, because Nancy was still family and Sullivan is saying you know, she forgot where she came from talking about Jacqueline and he's the man and tells her not to come to Slamboree. So there's this weird undercurrent building here with Benoit and Sullivan, and you're giving him some time off. How much of his, uh, marital situation was the cause of you saying, Hey man, maybe we just need to take a pause. Cause this is something we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, but I've always been curious how you manage this. It was a surreal situation, one that I had never experienced before. So there was no template as to how to handle it. But obviously, you know, the the storyline with Benoit and and Nancy Sullivan and and Kevin went from being, you know, art or, or, or life imitating art or art imitating life. I'm not even sure which at this point. It's so confusing. But when, anytime you weave, you know, a personal relationship into a storyline, I, I don't want to say any, not every time, but it's likely to affect the people involved. In this case, clearly it did with devastating ramifications. But it was 
it was a hard one to manage. I, and I think Kevin, look, I, I hadn't seen Kevin, you know, StarCast last year was the first time I had seen Kevin in 20 some odd years. And it was so great to see him. And he's, you know, he's grounded. He's, he's great to, to be around. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was actually the highlight for me of StarCast last year was just reconnecting with Kevin Sullivan. I, I have to tell you that. I don't think I mentioned it to you before. But during this period of time, Kevin had at least two, we had three issues that were pretty obvious to me. One, the pressure of the job. And I talked about it, you know, I talked about it with the talent. I was pretty transparent about all that. People, and, and to this day, you know, people have no idea, unless you have done it, unless you have been in, in the war room, if you will, in the bunker, and unless you've felt the pressure of creating consistently successful episodic television, this is the part that people that have people watch it, even wrestling talent, you know, they're out there performing, have no idea what it takes to create successful episodic television 52 weeks a year, year after year after year. People can criticize creative in WWE or could criticize, you know, WCW creative during any you know period of time they want to. And, you know, they're justified because there's been, you know, periods of times in both companies when the creative, you know, legitimately sucked. But until you've actually been in the position of having to create it and do it consistently over a long period of time, you don't have a fucking clue what you're talking about. You can have an opinion as to whether you like it or not. But you don't deserve an opinion as to whether people are adequately doing their job because you don't know what that takes. You don't know what's involved. And I did. By that time, I, I, at least I had an idea. I wasn't, wasn't that familiar because I didn't really get involved in creative for the most part until 96. You know, I danced around it a little bit in 95 because I had to. But I didn't really insert myself on a regular basis aggressively until probably 96. And by that time I went, wow, now I know why I didn't really want to get involved in creative because it, it, it's just an unbelievable pressure cooker. And I saw what was going on with Kevin. So he not only had that pressure of being in that position, being the booker, head writer, head of creative, whatever you want to call it, uh, is is a horrible position, particularly for someone who really comes from a wrestling background. Because with Kevin Sullivan, he still had a lot of relationships, just like Ric Flair did. It's one of the reasons Ric Flair didn't do very well in that role. It wasn't because Ric wasn't potentially great at it. It was because of the personal relationships in the, the way that manifests on someone like Rick or Kevin or Dusty Rhodes or anybody else that was in that position who originally started as a wrestler and were booking or writing or controlling the lives and the destinies of people who are at one point their peers. It's a really, really horrible position to put someone in. I saw that happening to Kevin. Add to that his marital situation, which only exacerbated it. Add to that, I hope Kevin isn't offended when I say this publicly. I don't think he would be. But Kevin, in order to get through a lot of his shit, was self-medicating, which only made everything worse. So, yeah, I gave him time off. And, and 
there was no more to it than that. I was so transparent with the media and with everybody in WCW as to why. But even though I was transparent, as you pointed out, it didn't matter to the dirt sheet community. They were just going to you know, write their rumors and spread their bullshit and, you know, keep selling dirt sheets or whatever they were doing at the time. But I, I was pretty honest about it, straightforward about it. You did an interview with Bob Ryder where you said the last few months I've seen less of the Kevin Sullivan. I've come to respect. I've seen people self-destruct and I was concerned he was approaching burnout. I didn't want to see that happen personally or professionally. I couldn't allow him to go down in flames. I thought the best thing is for him to get away from the business and relax. No matter how committed you are, when you were talking about creative input, it starts to get a kind of sameness to it. Kevin agreed. And he is excited about getting some time off. It's the most thankless job there is. You have 80 guys you have to please. And all of them want to be the most important thing in your lives. So you're trying to take care of him as well as you can. Uh, the May 12th night show, that same show it's in Baltimore. Uh, you said you were going to interview sting, but instead interviewed the imposter sting, Jeff farmer, the real sting comes out, drops the imposter with the scorpion death drop and you run away. Uh, it, it's so fun to go back and relive some of these moments from this era. And one of the things I love so much is seeing the real sting come down from the ceiling. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how that came to be, whose idea it was, what, uh, challenges or concerns there were, because this is something that, you know, while it's been done before in wrestling, it wasn't done frequently and it became a regular part of the act for a while. Well, and it wasn't done the way we did it. Um, you know, there were people that would repel, you know, across a zip line or that type of thing that, that had been done before. But dropping down from the ceiling into the center of the ring, the way, you know, Sting did it, had not been, at least not to my knowledge. And that was an idea. Actually, I would I would probably say Ellis Edwards, which is a name, you know, not many people talk about anymore. Um, in fact, Ellis didn't ever get a lot of publicity. But Ellis Edwards was, you know, WCW's kind of backstage stuntman, if you will. That was his idea. We were, and I remember, you know, Ellis and I and and two or three other people, maybe Craig Leathers and possibly Neil Pruitt, you know, a couple of people that I, that were involved in production that also had a pretty good creative perspective, were sitting around trying to come up with an idea, something that we could do with Sting that would make his entrance completely unique and spectacular. And that was Ellis's idea. And, you know, when... Of course, when you're sitting, you know, sitting around having lunch, you know, talking about, wow, we could do this and we could do this and we could do this. And Ellis goes off on this tangent. Ellis was from he's a good old Georgia boy. Cool as shit. Um, and, and had a great background in doing stunts in Hollywood. So he, he wasn't just like a, you know, a good old boy with a good idea. He was a good old boy with a good idea and a tremendous amount of credentials, you know, to back it up. But he was still that good old boy, you know, from Georgia and as he was describing, oh, no, man, here's what we're going to do. He'll come down from the ceiling. I'm going, are you nuts? You know, how do we do that? And he proceeded to tell me in technical terms how to accomplish it. I went, wow, he actually knows what he's talking about. This could work. And Ellis um, got to work, you know, rigging it up, testing it. It took him probably a month and a half or two months of testing, you know, with a, with a dummy before we got close to being comfortable with hooking Sting up and saying, okay, let's try this. 
And Ellis literally had to walk Steve Sting through every step of that and get him comfortable with it. But that was all Ellis Edwards. And by the way, even today, Ellis Edwards is the man in WWE who basically produces all of the backstage type stunts that you'll see, whether it's a car wreck or somebody flipping a car over, you know, any any of the big moments that you see backstage that would qualify as a stunt, those are produced by none other than Ellis Edwards. Let's uh, let's keep it moving here. I do want to ask about uh, something with Kurt because it's written in the observer. He's expected to start with WCW in June. And there's all sorts of legal claims that have to be sorted out. His contract was expiring around this time, but the WWF is claiming they still have him under contract. Um, they claim that WCW tampered with the contracted personnel. And since handing no show to pay-per-view and the WWF had him booked for that, he was technically suspended. So because he's suspended, they think that the contract doesn't expire until he comes back from the suspension and fulfills the remainder of the term of his contract. What do you remember about this legal wrangling to keep Kurt from coming to WCW? It, it was insignificant to me. And again, I, I'm not, I'm not punting this and trying to avoid discussing it. Um, but again, to you know, reiterate, when there were legal issues, they didn't, they didn't land on my desk. They landed on either Nick Lambros's desk or Diana Meyer's desk. And from their desk, they went up to Turner Legal. Now, I might be notified. You know, you can't use this guy on television until we clear this up. But I never got into the minutia of the issues. So when I say I don't recall or I can't recall – it's because I wasn't involved in it, not because I have a bad memory, not because I want to avoid the topic, because it just didn't land on my desk. Nobody asked me my opinion. I either got a green light or I got a red light. And in this case, I got a green light, meaning, well, assuming that whoever was dealing with it on the legal side didn't think it was a serious issue. I want to ask about this thing we've touched on before we, we last talked about that when we were covering something from the summer of 96, but here we are in may of 97 and it comes out that quote time Warner officially next, whatever plans were left to move the offices from Atlanta to Orlando. What ultimately was the reason that idea died? And do you remember it dying here in the spring of 97? So who reported the time Warner next? That's the first for me. I have never heard that before. Where did that come from? Um, the observer. Okay. That makes sense. Um, time Warner had nothing to do with that decision. That was my decision. I didn't have to ask time Warner for permission and anybody that really understood what they were talking about or writing about would have known that it wasn't a time Warner issue. Time Warner wasn't making any decisions at that time. Um, about, day-to-day operations, which this would have fallen under. It was my decision, and my decision was made. I really wanted to move the company to Orlando. It made financial sense. It made a great deal of financial sense. In fact, I had a ton of support from Turner Broadcasting, who was calling the shots, not Time Warner, Dave. 
Um, I had a lot of support from Turner Broadcasting to do it because on paper, it saved a fortune. But there were a lot of key employees. And this is what's unique about the wrestling business. I think it's really, really unique. When you find directors, producers, writers to a degree, um, people that really need to understand, you know, even cameramen, camera people, production staff. There's a lot of unique things about professional wrestling in terms of television production. It's not easy to replace people because it's not, you, you can't put an ad in the paper and say, look, I'm looking for a lead cameraman who's, you know, got 20 years of professional wrestling experience and interview 25 or 30 different candidates. You know, there's a small universe of people that have experience in this business. And in WCW at that time in 96, 97, when, when all of this was going down, even though I, even though on paper, from an economic point of view, I would have gotten all of the support in the world from Turner to move to to Orlando. It would have required a lot of really key people to take their kids out of school, sell their homes, move to Florida, and a lot of them didn't want to do it. So my decision was, okay, I know this makes financial sense on one hand, a great deal of it. On the other hand, I'm going to lose some key people that I may not be able to replace very easily. And it was my decision, not Turner Broadcasting's, not Time Warner's, (laughs) but it was my decision based on the fact that several key people, key individuals who had young children who owned their own homes just didn't want to uproot their families and move to Orlando. Let's talk about Slamboree 1997. We're finally here. Sell out, of course, 9,643 paid, an incredible gate, $167,705. The second largest gate in the long and storied history of Charlotte Wrestling. The only thing that beat it was 27,000 fans back in 1985 for a stadium match between Flair and Nikita Koloff. But here at Slamboree, 167 at the gate and more than a hundred thousand dollars in merchandise. One of the all time company records. Again, uh, the dark matches were Eugene Nagata pinning Pat Tanaka in about four and a half minutes. Can't believe this was a dark match, but the Harlem heat were in a losing effort to public enemy in about six minutes. And then we get to the actual pay-per-view, which you probably saw this time. Uh, I guess maybe the first time in 22 years. Is that right? I mean, you wouldn't be just randomly popping in slamboree shows, would you? Absolutely not. And it was. In fact, <laughs> this morning, you know, inside joke, you and I know this. I looked at your email from a couple of days ago and I misread it. I thought we were covering Spring Stampede 97 today. So I got up literally at 430 this morning. Went to bed early last night, got up early, had my coffee already. You know, it went off on time. Coffee was ready for me. Me and Nikki are sitting downstairs. I got my laptop on my lap. And I sit down to watch (laughs) Spring Stampede 97 because I thought that's the show we were going to do today. And about halfway through the first match, I'm going, man, we're either, you know, consistently producing some really great shows or this is pretty familiar. (laughs) And I realized that I was looking at the wrong show and that we had already covered spring stampede 97. So I immediately flipped over to slamboree 97 and was 
just as surprised in many respects with how good of a show it was. So, yeah, this was the first time I'd seen it since I produced it, completely had forgotten about it and had to dig into it thanks to WWE Network in order to remind myself of what the hell we were going to talk about today. Well, this match is uh, really good that we get started with. Steve Regal is going to regain the WCW television title from Ultimo Dragon in 16 minutes and four seconds. And this is really, really fun stuff. Three and three quarter stars uh, was the rating in the observer. I've always loved Regal style. It's different. It makes it interesting. I've been a huge Ultimo fan that Aussie moonsault was so far ahead of time and Regal here that we're seeing is not maybe the best version of himself, but this match is still tremendous. Sonny Ono gets involved at the finish. Uh, he kicks Ultimo and it looks like Ultimo is not wanting to do what he wants him to do. Ultimo ultimately, oh, that's interesting, uh, taps out to, or, or submits to William Regal almost immediately afterwards. Uh, and then Sonny Ono gets a little camera time and he says something like I make champions and I break them. So we got a little bit of a storyline going here with Sonny Ono and Ultimo Dragon, but as far as a way to start a pay-per-view, this is probably about as good as it gets, right? Um, I don't know if it's as good as it gets. You know, when I went back and I looked at Spring Stampede, which I thought we were going to do today, um, I think the matchup with Rey Mysterio and Ultimo Dragon from um, Spring Stampede was probably the ultimate way to start a pay-per-view. But I love this match. And there, and I probably loved it now. Again, I, I as I've said before, but we get a lot of first-time listeners here. When I go back and I look at these pay-per-views or nitros or whatever it is we're talking about. I look at them with a completely different perspective than I probably did when we produced them or I would have a year later or two years later because you know you just you learn more. You have a you you evolve in in different ways as a producer. And what I took away, it was a great match. I'm not taking anything away from the in-ring action was great. On a scale of 1 to 10, I don't know, seven or an eight. It was great. I'm a big fan. I always was a big fan of Steven Regal because his style was unique. That European kind of catches catch can style of wrestling is something that I started enjoying back as a young teenager with Billy Robinson in the AWA. I just, I love that. That to me is a big part of what wrestling at least what I enjoyed growing up as a wrestler. So that style appeals to me and Regal as, as a consequence certainly did as a performer. But when I looked at this match, a couple things that I, I made notes on was, you know, listen, first of all, Mike today, Dusty Rhodes, Bobby Heaton and Tony Schiavone put on a fucking clinic in terms of color and play by play. Now we've heard over the years, people bitch and moan about three-man broadcast booths. I prefer three-man. No, I like two-man. Whatever. Take your pick. I don't care. This is a four-man team. And it was as fluid and precise and effective as anything you will hear anywhere. Anywhere. NFL, NBA, WWE. I don't give two shits what you want to compare it to, go back and listen. If you're an up-and-coming broadcaster, you, you, you want to 
you know, somehow work your way up the ranks and get a shot at, at being a color or play-by-play person in WWE. If that's Hulk or Hogan a- calling, answer it on the air. That'd be fun. I'm sorry? If that was Hulk Hogan calling, call him back on the air. That'd be fun. Oh, I can't believe you can hear that. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm, I was hoping it was it was Terry Balea because that would be a fun run-in on the show. No, it's actually Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to him all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, but go back and listen to this example of how not two people, not three people, but four people can work together and be as synchronized and as effective as a Swiss watch. It's amazing to me. Mike today, and I, this is a kind of a mental note I made to myself. I didn't write it down, but Mike today in particular, I think even I have failed to acknowledge just how significant Mike's role was in adding credibility to the cruiserweight division, to the Lucha division or the luchadors that were part of the cruiserweight division to the, to the Japanese wrestlers that we brought over from Japan, because he really was and is a walking, talking, fucking encyclopedia of information. And the beauty of what we did back then and, and the artistry of it was Mike knew exactly when to jump in, to add that level of credibility and background and backstory that helped make what we were seeing so believable and credible. Bobby Heenan, who was typically, I don't want to say a stand-up kind of, you know, play-by-play guy or a comedy kind of play-by-play guy, but he was always, he added that heel kind of, I don't know how you describe the humor, but it was almost humorous. His take on his perspective on things was as a heel, but you couldn't help but laugh at it. You know what I mean? Even if you didn't agree with him, even if he was making fun of somebody that was a baby face that you may be cheering for, he was still so good. It was entertaining as hell. But Bobby knew when to lay in and lay out. His his timing was perfect. Tony was the ultimate traffic cop. And he was the orchestra. He, he he was leading the orchestra. He was the guy that kept everything going and flowing, and 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 kept it timed beautifully. And Dusty, same thing. Dusty added the flavor, and he didn't compete. You know, Bobby. You know, a, a, a color commentator. Their job isn't to give you information. Isn't to add credibility necessarily. You don't want to take it away, but that's not their job. Their job is to add color, to give you a sense of smell, a sense of taste, a, another dimension of entertainment to what is otherwise an audio description of what you should be seeing. But typically, if you have Bobby on one side of the table and Dusty on the other side, you have two people essentially doing the same job. They would typically step all over each other or compete with each other or just be redundant. But in this particular case, go back and listen to this commentary. These guys, all four of them, actually lifted each other up. And as a result, as a viewer, you really got sucked in to what you were seeing. And I think if there was ever an example of perfect commentary, in my opinion, as a producer, this might be one of those examples. Let's... uh... Let's talk about the next match here. Right, next no, match. we do that. 
go back to the seven minute and 15 minute mark of this match. Yep. Listen to, as another example, listen to Dusty and Mike Tanay talk about, of all things, the world television title. Now, the world television title was, a, it was just, man, you talk about an afterthought in terms of how much time and energy went into booking it and how much emphasis we really put on it and all that. Admittedly, it was an afterthought. But at 7 minutes and 15 seconds, listen to Dusty and Tene add credibility to the world television title in a way that I've never heard anybody do before. And I'm listening to this for the first time since I produced it. I'm going, damn, these guys are awesome. There is nobody like – and keep in mind, I wasn't in their ear. They weren't getting any direction. You know, we didn't sit down and spend – 12 hours going over notes and, you know, okay, you're going to say this now, you're going to say this now, you're going to say that. These guys were improving, but their instinct and their ability to improv based on their just natural ability and their experience was second to none. All right. Now we can go on to the next one. Sorry. I guess we should mention this is Steve Regal's fourth reign as the television champion. He's going to lose the title on uh, nitro again, July 22nd, back to Ultimo dragon. Uh, let's talk about Medusa wrestling Luna Vachon here. That's our next match. Uh, and here the winner is going to get a title shot at Akira Hokuto, which is kind of fun because Medusa was the champion, but she wasn't the champion, but you know, whatever. Uh, Medusa gets the win five minutes, nine seconds with a German suplex, uh, star and a half is what I got in the observer. Luna wasn't long for this world, uh, but you guys were still trying to do something with Medusa. Uh, why don't you think um, this thing ever gained any traction? This thing being the match between Medusa and uh, Luna? Or the women's division or Medusa and WC, any well, of that. Well, look, there just wasn't as many credible, um, athletic, believable women in 1997 as there are today. It wasn't like there, you know, it wasn't like there were women all over the United States or all over the world training to become professional wrestlers. Number one, there was no, you know, performance center, you know, not too many women were interested in coming down to the power plant to train to become professional wrestlers. You couldn't really put an ad in the paper and expect to have much luck. So there just wasn't, you know, the, the talent pool in 1997 of women wrestlers is there are today you know and it wasn't until recently you know we're talking about 2019 now you know you can look at wwe's roster and you can look at the independency you can find a lot of, you know a, a, a lot of women out there you know performing you know on the independency today but they're doing so as a result of what probably took place primarily in the wwe back in the mid to late 90s and in, in early 2000s when all of a sudden wwe was making room you know, for women wrestlers. Now, granted, the way they were making room for them creatively was not anything like it is today. And the world has changed. You know, everything has changed. But go back to 1997 and make me a list of all of the women that were available on a worldwide basis to create a division from. And you had a small handful of people, handful of women. That was the reason why we never did more. That was the reason why in 1997 we didn't get the traction that the women's division is getting today is because there were no women desiring to become professional wrestlers. Or if there were, they were in small pockets and not very many of them and quite 
truthfully, those that were there weren't really all that great. That's the reason. What is pretty great is the macho man, Randy Savage, he's going to come out for an interview and then diamond Dallas page comes out with a crutch and, uh, he attacks him. Savage runs away. The B team comes out. Uh, with Savage, you know, you know, the usual players back. What do you B team? I was part of that B team, bitch. B team. You're part of the A team. Okay. My bad. Where would you classify Vincent? He's up there with the outsiders, Hulk Hogan, tippy top guy. If you're out there and you're wearing NWO black and white, and there's a red light on a camera, you are a team. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Let's move on though. Uh, There's a little bit of an interaction here, a little bit of physicality, but then there's a fun promo here from Diamond Dallas Page where he says, Oh, you must have a prior engagement. That's the reason you're trying to leave, but I know it's not with Kimberly. It's probably not even with Liz. I bet it's watching washing Hulk Hogan's car. And uh Savage sells are pretty big. That was a fun line. I mean, it's not a big deal, but if you know about the competitive rivalry between the two, and most fans, even in the crowd at that point, knew that. That's a pretty fun little story. Yeah, it had a little bit of an edge on it. Might have need somebody might have needed a tetanus shot after that one. You know, that one drew blood. Next up, we've got Rey Mysterio in a match that uh, anytime Rey's wrestling in '96 or '97, I'm in. Uh, he does. Meltzer would say he does a great job carrying a fairly green wrestler from the War Promotion here to a good match. I'm gonna uh, make an attempt to butcher his name here, even though I heard it all morning. I'm sure you're gonna correct me, Yuji Yasurioka. Go with that. I'm I'm not even going to touch that. See, I tried I'm, though. I'm I'm usually pretty good with Japanese names because they're phonetically they're really easy because there's you know there's no long you know vowels or anything like that. It's pretty much pronounced exactly the way it looks. But I I'm not even going to touch that one. Either way, Ray gets a win over this young upstart Yuji. Just under 15 minutes. It's a springboard Hurricane Rana as a finish, which is awesome. Uh, I'm a big fan of anything Ray did in this era. This match is no exception. Three and a quarter stars. It's hard to believe with his crazy style that he works. He's still wrestling 22 years later, uh, but he is. What do you think of this match here? I thought it was great. And I had forgotten all about the Japanese participant who I'm not going to try to butcher his name. I would forgotten all about it till I saw this and extremely impressed. And again, really, really loved this match. So I think these two had worked before according to the commentary that I heard from today. So it wasn't like this was the first time they'd ever worked together, but still regardless, they, they had a great match and it was the kind of thing that, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it a million times. The cruiserweight division was a big reason why I think WCW stood apart from the WWE at this time. And this match was a perfect example of one of the reasons why we were as successful as we were. Uh, next up the polar opposite of why you were as successful as you were glacier. is going to get a win over mortis, uh, by DQ though, it goes under two minutes outside interference to wrath is the reason this happens. It gets a dud rating. Uh, James Vandenberg is here. Uh, Ernest Miller is going to hit the ring and throw all kinds of kicks. And what, what I, what I found is interesting about this is Ernest Miller, when he tells this story, yeah, allegedly he was talking to Mortis beforehand and he told Ernest, just kick me for real. And Ernest thought, well, that's ridiculous. I, I'm, I can't do that. I'm not doing that. 
And he said, no, dude, you have to kick me for real. Because if you don't, the fans are going to shit on it. And there's no chance with a new character that you're going to get over. It just kick me for real. And Ernest says it was almost like out of a movie. It's the be- one of the best kicks he's ever thrown. He kicked the shit out of him. What'd you think of this? I know that the whole Mortis and Glacier, you know, attempt at creating characters gets a lot of derisive heat. I get it. But here's two things. You know, here's my note. Go back to one hour, two minutes, and 32 seconds and look at what Mortis does with Glacier on the ring steps. That's one of the reasons why so many people loved working with Mortis. He could invent shit that had never been done before and improv it and, and, and come up with unique ways of doing something that looked so devastating, but wasn't, that was perfectly safe. And again, WWE network, one hour, two minutes, 32 seconds, Slamboree 97, check it out. And that's why people still talk about Mortis today. Now, in terms of, you know, the characters we've covered this before, my intent However, you know, ill-conceived as it may have been at the time, or poorly timed, was probably more accurate, was to create characters that would somehow evolve and morph into video games. That was the intent of these characters. And you 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 can shit on it all you want, but I think the idea was sound. Now, the timing may have been bad. I think if I would have come up with this a year or possibly two years sooner, we'd all be having a different conversation about these types of characters, including Wrath, who got involved here. But this was really, to your point, this was early, and uh, I think Ernest may have appeared on Worldwide once or twice prior to this, but I think I think this was his Nitro debut, which is why Tony and everybody tried to, you know, not immediately identify him and refer to him as someone came out of the audience because he was so new on the scene. But I, I thought this segment, honestly, I, I'm i proud of it. It may not have you know, reached the goal I wanted it to reach. My timing could have been bad. But the performance in the ring, the story that was being told, some of the unique, never-seen-before execution you know, in the ring, um, you know, I'm just not embarrassed by it. The only thing that you know, I kind of cringed a little bit was – James Vandervuck or whatever the fuck his name was. I can't remember as a manager, not, not a big fan of that. Never was even less so now because it didn't serve any real purpose. Um, that was effective. But other than that, I, I thought this was, I was, I enjoyed watching it back. Let's put it that way. Uh, next up, we've got Dean Malenko retaining the U S title over Jeff Jarrett, uh, 15 minutes and three seconds. Meltzer would write, even though this is the heart of horseman country, they, bu- they booed Jarrett out of the building. They got three stars. Uh, Steve McMichael's going to come out. Um, he's sort of mad that Deborah is hovering over Jarrett and he's going to throw Jarrett in the ring and then drag Deborah out. Malenko's going to hit a tiger driver and then use the Texas Cloverleaf for the submission. Two things here. One, this is a little current. Are you surprised to hear that Dean recently left WWE? No, I'm surprised he stayed as long as he did. You know, that's, that's a grind, you know, and uh, 
you know, I ran into Shane Helms. Oh, I can't remember where I was, Fort Wayne, maybe a couple weeks ago. I asked him how things were going. He told me he was a producer backstage at WWE. I asked him, how's that? And he's very happy to be there. He's, you know, thrilled to be a part of WWE. But he did mention that those are some long, long days. Dean's been doing that for a long time. He's had, you know, health issues. I'm, you know, Arn, same thing. Now, I know Arn left under different circumstances, but I don't know how those guys, I mean, those those guys are, they're my heroes. You know, to be able to, to be able to do that 52 weeks a year, year after year after year, 18 or 20 years under the kind of pressure that they're under in WWE is amazing to me. So hats off to both of them. I'm glad Dean's out. You know, he's he's old enough now that he needs to slow down just a little bit and enjoy his life. That is a young man's game. That's a great job if you're 35 or 38 years old, especially if you don't have a family. But, you know, once you get up into your 50s or 60s, you know, to be on the road as a producer in WWE is an amazing, amazing grind. So I'm I'm glad he's I'm glad he's left and I hope he enjoys, you know, the rest of his life. And he beat Another producer for WWE, Jeff Jarrett here, who I decided watching this match, I'm going to put in my regular vocabulary. I'm going to make Jeff Jarrett a part of my everyday speak. What is it? I'm going to refer to the fast forward button as Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> I, have- I was going to say, do you know who, who had the hottest hip hop song? You know, cause you and I talked about, you know, the fact that I actually enjoy hip hop and you were so shocked. I am. That was the yellow, the yellow wolf. By the way, the song is till it's gone. It's probably one of my most uh, played songs on my iPad, but in May of 1997, do you know what the hottest hip hop song was on the radio? Uh, no. Hypnotized notorious B I G let's move on. We don't want to talk about Jeff Jarrett anymore. Okay, that was really random, and I like this new hip-hop Eric Bischoff. Next up, we've got Ming, who's going to beat Chris Benoit in what's billed as a death match in 14 minutes and 54 seconds. Uh, this this is uh, Styles Clash, if there ever was a thing. Benoit is going to be using German suplexes off the ropes. He's going to come off with a diving headbutt, but Ming catches him with the throat nerve hold that you guys are calling the tongue and death grip. And that's a wrap two and three quarter stars. Benoit seems like he's got a lot of uh, upward mobility here. looks like he's moving up the ranks and now he's losing to Ming on pay-per-view. What's up with that? You know, you see, this is a difference between, I think people that watch the product and people that produce the product. I thought this match got Chris Benoit over more than a win would have. Let me be clear. I enjoyed the match. I'm not knocking the match. I just, I find the timing of Kevin Sullivan and his issues and, um, Chris Benoit's involvement and all that. And then he loses on pay-per-view to Ming. I think a lot of people, if you were conspiracy theorists could draw some conclusions, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And and again, I don't, I honestly, I, I wish I had a much better memory than I do. I, I don't remember all the backstage drama from 20 years ago and what the specific timeline of it all was. And by the way, if I did, I'd be really concerned about myself, I guess. But here, here's what I saw going back, watching this for the first time as a as a television producer, as a storyteller. I think 
whoever laid this finish out, however this match was laid out, whoever did it, I think did more for Chris Benoit and this particular part of his career at this point in his trajectory than giving him a win over Ming. That's the thing that people often refer to when they're commentating about wrestling is, oh, this guy should have never done a job here. He should have got a win here. Like fucking wins and losses really matter. Wins and losses don't really matter. What matters is the story and, and the backstory that surround the wins and losses. In this particular case, whoever laid this match out, Kevin Sullivan or otherwise, did it in such a way that I think made Chris Benoit more believable, more believable in an honest way than had he somehow beaten Ming. Because he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't let Nancy interfere. Which, by the way, when I'm watching this back, I'm going, oh, my God, please don't let Nancy interfere. Please don't let Nancy interfere and, and cause Benoit to win. Because that is so freaking typical of what WCW did. Going back to the opening match here in this particular pay-per-view with Sonny Ono, when he got inv involved and almost immediately caused Ultimate, Ultimo Dragon you know, to lose. What the fuck? We're never going to see a Sonny Ono in a wrestling ring. Why would you put that much heat on somebody who's never going to deliver a pay-per-view match? Nothing against Sonny. I love him. He's one of my best friends. It's not the point. The point is the finish. The finish was fucking horrible. And here, rather than having what would have been a highly anticipated based on a pattern of decades, or not decades, but many years in WCW, you know, outside interference to cause, you know, a win. In this case, Benoit called her off. Because he had too much pride, because he was that much of a, a of a straight up competitor, because he believed in himself, he wasn't going to let a woman win the match for him. If anything were to endear a character to a freaking audience, it was that particular moment. So I moment. So I challenge your perspective that a conspiracy theorist may think it's because Kevin Sullivan and Nancy and Chris had their issue. Yes, that was true, but it didn't manifest itself in this particular match. Okay, I'm done. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm never going to trust a motherfucker who says Vincent was on the NWA team. So it is what it is. <laughs> Uh, next up, nope. we got the Nor should you, nor should you. <laughs> Rick and Scott Steiner get a win over Conan and Hugh Morris, starring three quarters. It's just sort of okay for me. After the match, Conan turns on Hugh Morris, leaves him laying with a DDT, and walks out on Jimmy Hart. I guess he's quitting the Dungeon of Doom. Uh, the match was just sort of there for me. Next up, though, we've got what was probably a good idea on paper, but woo, this is bad. Steve McMichael pins Reggie white in 15 minutes and 17 seconds. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. Like the NFL's Reggie white. Yes. One in the same. They go 15 fucking minutes. <laughs> and, uh, Meltzer would say whoever got the idea that these two could go 15 minutes needs to be sent back to the sanitarium. These two basically had a match worked out for them. The first few minutes were just talking and walking and doing no cell tackle spots. After white delivered, perhaps the worst looking clothesline in wrestling history that McMichael had to sell, McMichael walked out. However, Gilbert Brown, a 380 pound lineman on the Packers picked McMichael up and threw him back into the ring. And then white threw a decent looking drop kick. Michael's McMichael started pounding on Reverend Reggie and said, Jesus may have your soul, but I've got your ass, which is kind of a fun line, I guess. Uh, at one point things deteriorate. And, um, allegedly this is great. 
The crowd died at this point. A signal was sent from the back to tell the guys to go home. But since they had their match worked out and weren't into improvising, they didn't listen. At this point, it was the blind leading the blind and McMichael had to sell the most pathetic offense on a major wrestling show in recent memory. The finish wasn't too bad as McMichael went to use the briefcase thrown in by Deborah, but Brown grabbed it away from him. Jarrett showed up with a second briefcase and threw it to McMichael who clocked white for the pin negative two stars. I can't believe that's all it was negative though. This is uh, really, really bad. And for starters. It had no business being 15 minutes. Fair? More than fair. It's horrible. Isn't it ironic, though, that Reggie White, I think Reggie was an all-pro, not sure. Oh, for sure. Um, couldn't throw a clothesline? <laughs> That's where clotheslines came from, for crying out loud, was football. Um, yeah, no, there's, I mean, what can I say? I, yeah, it was horrible. It was, and, and there again, you know, in the finish, although, you know, whoever was coming, I, I'm assuming it was Dave, you know, saying, well, the finish wasn't that horrible. Actually, the finish was horrible. It was another outside interference finish, which was so good. You go back and you look at, you know, all of the things that, you know, WCW did well, some of the things that WCW did well and all of the things that they didn't do well prior to me getting there. While I was there and after I left, and it was finishes. Finishes sucked in WCW. Nobody ever figured out. I don't care. Dusty, you know, wasn't great at finishes. Ric Flair wasn't great at finishes. Kevin Sullivan Sullivan wasn't great at finishes. Eric Bischoff wasn't great at finishes. I I think the the legacy of WCW, I I guess depending on who you're going to talk to, but from my perspective is, man, I wish we would have had a Pat Patterson. Let's, um, let's talk about Reggie white coming in. Oh, why would you want to do that? Well, I mean, here's the deal. Reggie had been a wrestling fan for a long time. He was in Lawrence Taylor's corner for his match at WrestleMania 11 against Bigelow a couple years prior to this. He's a former teammate with McMichael for the Packers in 94. Uh, I'm sure that he's a big wrestling fan and I'm just curious. How does the deal come together. I mean, we've got Kevin green in the main event, which we're about to get to. Obviously he's familiar with Kevin and friends with Steve. Talk me through, I mean, Reggie White's one of the all time greats. Talk me through how you guys put a deal together. Um, McMichaels, get, get, I mean, my, Steve McMichael gave me his phone number and I called him and we worked it out. He was excited to do it. And you know, those, you know, Kevin, Steve, Reggie, were all tight. You know, we did a deal with Refrigerator Perry, you know, sometime before or after this. All these guys were close, and they all knew each other. And there was, you know, an effort on our part. We wanted to bring some big name, you know, all-pro Super Bowl champion, you know, that level of NFL player in. We weren't bringing guys in that nobody had ever heard of before or were, you know, on the practice team just because they were assigned to a team. We were bringing in top-name guys that were either all-pros or Super Bowl champions because, again, as we've discussed before so many times, I knew that by booking these guys on pay-per-views, I would be getting all kinds of press on morning drive time radio across the United States that we could never afford to purchase. And we'd be getting it for free. So from a wrestling fan's point of view, eh, it was horrible. 
Yes, that 15 minutes was painful. From a marketing and promotional point of view, I'm sorry, I would do it again if given the opportunity today. Because from a business perspective, short, midterm, it made a lot of sense. Arguably long-term, it may have hurt the product a little bit because people may have felt less than enthusiastic about that 15 minutes of a three-hour pay-per-view or two-and-a-half-hour pay-per-view. But, you know, risk and reward analysis the, the the reward far outweighed the risk. Let's uh, let's talk about our main event. That's why we're really here. Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, Kevin Green. They're a six man team, and it's Ric Flair's return to Charlotte. And they're going to be taking on Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Six. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Kevin Green plays for the Carolina Panthers in Charlotte. So this is as loaded up for the hometown crowd as you can get. Your local wrestling legend, Ric Flair, and your local superstar, all pro, um, Hall of Fame linebacker, Kevin Green. The match isn't nearly what you might expect because it's much better. Uh, I, I kind of had high hopes for this when it first happened, maybe. But when I watched it again this year, I thought, nah, this is going to suck. It really wasn't. Uh, I was a little shocked that Kevin Green didn't get a bigger response. Um, but it was fun to see six have some interaction here. You know, the, the NWO crew, their heel swagger is at an 11 and, um, they get their, their payoff here. The hometown crowd goes home happy because Piper knocks out the referee, Randy Anderson. That leads to Nick Patrick coming out. Flair puts Scott Hall in the figure four. Those are your legal men. Uh, Piper is going to put Kevin Nash in the sleeper hold and Kevin green power slam six. All three guys are down all of your heels. Nick Patrick makes the count and the pop is incredible, uh, for all three baby faces beating all three bad guys. And it's a super clean finish. Pretty fun. Uh, especially for the hometown crowd here, the crowd helped make this main event. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it would. What'd you think? I'm with you, brother. When I, when I finally realized what show we were going to record today, and then I got to Slambury 97. I went, oh, that's the main event. Oh, my God. Conrad's going to beat my ass. Um, <laughs> I'm going to feel like I've been drugged through the desert on the back of a horse. And like you, when I saw this, I went, damn. Scott, Kevin, and Six really stepped up. Now, that's yep. not taking anything away from Rick and Roddy and Kevin. But, you know, we all know th- there were times when – Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and, and, and even Six could be less than cooperative or difficult or challenging to work with just because of their philosophy and psychology at certain points. But, man, they showed up in Charlotte ready to put the good guys over and to send everybody home happy. And I was so proud of them, so proud of them. I mean, as, as much as both Scott and Kevin – and six to a lesser degree during this period of time, put me through the ringer emotionally and, and psychologically, I guess, challenged me. Um, I was still, I consider all three of them some of my closest friends today. I was in Liverpool with both Scott and Kevin, and I could not, and Rick and, and other people, I don't want to name drop, but just I couldn't be more proud of this match and glad that we're still friends today because this this shows what those guys are really capable of doing when 
when when properly motivated. It's a great match. It's worth going back and watching just because it's better than you imagine. I do want to ask, um, you know, obviously six is really the underrated star in this. I mean, he's in there to, you know, sort of cover up some of the deficiencies of a guy like Kevin green. Um, it's Flair's first match back Kevin green, you know, in a main event on a pay-per-view when they come back through the curtain, does everybody feel like they hit a home run or can you take us back to that moment? No, absolutely. They did. I mean, absolutely. They did. I mean, the crowd reaction. I mean, if you weren't sure if you were in that ring and I can't speak, I can speak as a performer, not as a wrestler, but you know, when you're in that ring and you're in a moment, whether you're trying to get heat or you're trying to get, you know, a baby face pop, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, you know, in, there is a moment when you almost, I'll speak for myself. I almost lose consciousness when it gets that good. It, it's, I'm not a golfer, but I can only imagine that when you swing a golf club and you make contact with the ball, you know, before your eyes even fixate on that ball, as it's going down the fairway, you know, you, you hit it right. You just know. And that feeling of knowing that you did it right and that vibration that you get and that energy you get from the crowd is such that you can feel it in the marrow of your bones. It's it's a rush that I'm not sure I can describe any better than that. It literally is like you feel the marrow of your bones vibrating in a certain way. And it's the coolest feeling in the world. You cannot possibly not know that you hit it out of the park. It's impossible. Uh, let's talk about, uh, the rumor and innuendo, uh, Waltman has said that Piper and flair lobbied to have Hulk Hogan in the match instead of him. I don't think the match would have been nearly as good, but hypothetically humorous for a minute. Do you remember Piper or flair? ever campaigning for Hogan? No, I don't. And I'm not saying that it didn't happen. I just don't. You don't remember. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I really, it, well, it never reached my, my radar. Let's put it that way. There was a rumor around this time that, uh, Kevin green was asked to turn heel on flair and Piper and join the NWO here in Charlotte. But green allegedly nixed that idea and said he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be the hometown hero. Do you remember that being discussed? Yeah, I do. And it wasn't that he wanted to be the hometown hero. That's somebody's, you know, creative input on that. It, it did come up. It, it was an alternative finish that was discussed. Kevin didn't feel comfortable doing it, not because he didn't want to be the hero. He just didn't think he could he could pull that off. He loved Ric Flair. And, you know, keep in mind, Kevin was not a professional wrestler. He was an athlete. He's a professional athlete that was – hanging out for a minute or two he he didn't understand character he didn't understand baby face and heel from a psychology point of view he didn't relate to what he was doing the same way people that did it professionally did and yeah it was brought up yes he did say man i just don't think i can do that and when somebody like kevin who's who's just there for a moment he's there for a cup of coffee doesn't feel like he or she can 
do something like that, you're better off playing into their strengths than you are trying to teach them to swim upstream and become something they're not. I've said this before. The best versions of most characters that we all put up on a pedestal are versions of the real person with the volume turned up a little bit, or in some cases a lot. Whether it's Stone Cold Steve Austin or Ric Flair, you know, The Rock, you name it. These are characters that found themselves and felt comfortable being themselves and learned how to turn up the volume in a way that they weren't necessarily acting. They were exaggerating. They weren't acting. And when you take somebody who's there temporarily and they feel completely uncomfortable with a role as a producer or director in this case, you're kind of an idiot. If you say, yeah, I don't really care, Kevin. Don't worry about that. Here's what I want you to do. You, you, you're almost assuring yourself of a disappointing outcome if, if you were to do that. That's my opinion. Now, if we would have had Kevin for six months out of the year and we could take him out on the road and we could teach him and he could become comfortable and learn and adapt to the psychology of an antagonist or a protagonist or a baby face and heel, that's one thing. But when you've only got him for a couple weeks or less, um, better to better to teach him to swim faster downstream than to try to fight to swim upstream, if that makes sense. Well, hopefully you guys have not felt like you were swimming upstream with us today because I have had a lot of fun talking about Slamboree 1997. I enjoy going back and, and visiting these old shows. I couldn't get rid of all the Meltzer bashing this week, but I'll try again next week. We appreciate you tagging in with us and jumping on board for a little Slamboree action. And uh, I guess we should tell everybody we're getting a little closer to Starcast. And the rumor and innuendo is that uh, your panel on the Nitro book, which we've plugged here for, I don't know, well over a year, is going to be the talk of the show. Uh, I think they're lining up a lot of uh, behind the scenes personnel from WCW. What are you most looking forward to talking about when we visit with Guy Evans and discuss the Nitro book? I, I, I am such a fan of Guy Evans. And I want to make this clear, you know, because you and I both have been supporting Guy's book, the Nitro book, for a long time now. There's a lot of unflattering things about me in that book. There's a lot of things when I, when I read through that book, I read about myself, I went, oh, man, really? Was it necessary? But it doesn't take away from the fact that that book is so credible. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to Guy Evans, who is a legitimate journalist who did the hard work and actually did real research and conducted real interviews at, at what I'm sure was you know a, a great expense to him in publishing this book. But the th- the thoroughness and the detail and the honestly, I learn. I still go back and I read that book and I'll go back to it for reference because there were so many things going on above my head at, at, at the senior, senior, senior executive levels within Turner Broadcasting and AOL Time Warner that I wasn't even aware of until I read that book. So I'm, I'm probably going to be asking more questions of Guy Evans than any anybody in the audience because I think of everybody on that panel, I'm probably more interested in what was going on around me. Because, like I said, he, he he covered so much ground that I wasn't even aware of. It was fascinating. Well, if you can't make it to Las Vegas this Memorial Day weekend, the place to be is StarCastOnFight.com. Check it out. You'll get that panel and more than 20 others included for the low, low price of just $59. 
It's both live and on demand and glorious HD unlimited replays. And you not only get that show, but you get other shows like the last something to wrestle the panel with Tony Schiavone and sting. Uh, of course, Bret Hart's going to sit down with Sean Mooney and a little cameo from Tom McGee for that long lost match. We've got Cody in the Bucks sitting down with Alex Marvess to talk about how in the world we got here to be all elite and so much more, including the crown jewel, the roast of Ric Flair. Check it out right now. Starcast on fight.com. You can pre-order for just 59 bucks. In the meantime, he is Eric Bischoff. I am Conrad Thompson, and we will see you next week right here when we discuss Slambury 1999, your main event, Kevin Nash and Diamond Dallas Page. It's going to be fun. See you then. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.